This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Did the 1980s have more one-hit wonders than any other decade? Come on, Eileen, relax. Girl, you know it's true. Once again, it's time for the Idiots. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of the Idiots. An objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of idiots. My name is Will, and joining me, as always, from a remote uh, bunker somewhere, is my friend and my co-host, Ray. How you doing, Ray? Red Dawn to Rumpus Room. <laughs> Are you there, Rumpus Room? Wolverines! Yeah, so uh, much like everybody, we are playing it safe. Uh, and even though we are, you know, live right across the street from one another, we are we are recording remotely from the, the, my rumpus room here to connected uh, electronically to Ray's rumpus room, just I don't know, a hundred feet or so away. Yeah, I've decided to call mine Red Dawn. Okay, geez, no, I don't. And eventually, I can't wait to get back there. But for now, this will have to do. Yeah, we're hoping it's going to be just will be just a short thing. But you know, hey, like everybody else, we're doing our part. So, folks, that's right. Stay home, wash your hands, avoid people. The, the more that people do that, the faster this will end. Right. There's plenty of '80s movies that you can watch. You could do an Indiana Jones uh, marathon, mm-hmm. like several times over, and it would get you through this. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're going to have to uh, maybe post some suggestions, and maybe we'll solicit some responses. What are your you know, apocalyptic uh, films to get through the next couple of weeks. Yeah, we'll have to post something for people so they know what to to do. You know, like what albums they should listen to, what movies they should watch. Yeah. Perhaps some board games they could play. Yeah. I was wondering if there's some kind of thing we could do as a community, like some kind of 80s games we could play together online somehow. I don't even know what that would be. I think the games we played as kids, you know, to pass sick days, etc., were probably um, games from the 70s or 60s, you know, anyway, like Connect Four and... Uh, yeah, like I that. would also uh, suggest going on our Facebook page and doing our trivia, because that's a lot of fun. True enough, and there's certainly tons of it throughout the day. Yeah, it, it just happens. It's just like magic. magic. The elves, yes. Yeah. The 80s elves. So today yep. we're going to be talking about one-hit wonders from the 1980s, and in keeping with that, a little bit later, we're going to be speaking with our guest today, Todd Kerpelman, a genius statistician who uh, and data scientist who did some work to determine whether or not the 1980s had the most one-hit wonders. But before all that, let's get caught up on 80s news. Okay, well, hey, speak, let's get this out of the way, because we don't want to spend the entire episode talking about our troubles here, because we're going to focus on the positive. But one down note here is that the coronavirus pandemic has affected us personally, Ray. Yeah, I'm not happy about it. The Beastie Boys, the Beastie Boys story Theatrical release has been postponed. Boo. So our plans to, or your plan, to Mystery Science three, Theater 3000 it on uh, April 3rd will have to be postponed to another unknown date. April 4th? No, no, no. They haven't, they haven't said oh, yet. Man, this is horrible. This, this is not good. No. So now it's affecting us personally. Now we're mad at the virus. Mm-hmm. But we, the good news is it's still going to be available to stream on April 24th. So... Hopefully at that point, we're out and about and going to movie theaters by April 24th. But hey, we've got that backup if we are still in our independent bunkers. Yeah, we got that in our pocket, so that's good. 
Yeah, maybe we could do a remote viewing party or a viewing party with the with the idiots community at large. I see people do some stuff like that online somehow. I don't know what the technical details are, but okay. So in other eighties news, hey, I, I you know we learned about these uh, two types of synthesizers way back when we first spoke to Professor Michael Bratt about the I'm going to say Moog and hope that he's listening. Yeah, we we like Moog, the Moog and the Korg. Uh, so Moog and Korg that have they have apps for musicians to use, and they are following a similar pattern with many that many other generous companies are to make this time fly by a little bit more quickly. They are making their apps for free to musicians uh, to help them uh, continue to do work while they're stuck at home. So if you're a musician and you want to use the Moog, you can download their Moog app for the iOS for free. Yeah, it sucks for our musician friends because they can't play out right now. Because as we know, all the clubs and bars are closed. So, yeah, what are they supposed to do? Yeah. Oh, oh, I know, I know what they should do. They should, they should keep delivering pizzas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just their, they're just their nighttime hobby was interrupted, not their day job. <laughs> <laughs> I kid, I kid. <laughs> it's funny because it's true. Um, but hey, you can you can jam on your Moog and create songs like those uh, in the 1980s by Kraftwerk, because they used. The Moog. Or, oh, or Flock of Seagulls. Yeah, they must have used a Moog. Maybe they even used a Moog. Uh, but also, um, Korg is doing the same for their, and I'm going to say they pronounce this the Coscillator app. Chaosolator app? Ooh, yeah, yeah sounds, sounds like chaos to me, yeah. Oh, Chaosolator, yes! See? You're right, of course. I have my value. <laughs> you do serve a purpose. The Chaosolator app uh, normally costs 20 bucks, but now it's also going to be free. If you've got an Android, you've got till March 20th, just a couple of days. Probably that will have passed by the time you hear this episode. <laughs> but if you have an, I, an iOS device, you've got till March 31st. So go out there and get your iChaosolator. Uh, and you can make songs like those that we relished in the 1980s. And we're going to be talking about songs like that today when we talk about One Hit Wonders. Here is another bit of 80s news for you. Were you a fan of the kids in the hall? I love the kids in the hall. They're amazing. Oh, you did? Oh, fantastic. Well, if you remember, their show ran from, uh, originally aired in 1989, so it was part of our favorite decade. Mm -hmm. Amazon is bringing the Canadian sketch comedy show back to the streaming network with eight all new episodes. I guarantee this will be a gigantic hit. Yeah, I would think so. Those guys were hilarious and cutting edge and, you know, ahead of their time as far as the type of comedy and risks and things they focused on. Um, but the whole group is back, too. Dave, Kevin, Bruce, Mark, and Scott are all set to return with a new batch of episodes. Yeah, that's going to be kick-ass. And in our final bit of 80s news today, this is something going back, uh, actually, it's going about a month ago, but I wanted to bring it up, and I had forgotten, and I wanted to bring it up now, because no time like the present, we've got nothing else to do. Hmm. Did you know they are remaking, or rebooting, one of your favorite things to have happened to an 80s film, the 1985 film Clue. Clue is being remade now? <laughs> yes, Clue. Remember that Tim Curry uh, film? Yeah, well, the cool thing about it was they, they released to theaters different endings. Yes. Did you know that? I do remember that, yeah. Do you think they'll do it again? I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, when I, when I, now, when I saw it as a kid, I only saw the one ending in the movie, I didn't see the multiple ones till it was like on HBO or on tape or something. Then they had all three like in a row. Mm -hmm. did, you, did you see, have you seen all the three endings? No, I saw the original ending. Mm. Yeah, I only saw the original. Well, you say original, but you only saw one based on randomly whatever you got. <laughs> well, 
Actually, yeah, yeah, I have no idea if it's the original. <laughs> and I don't even remember who who done it. Who done it in the one that I saw? Or the, in all, any of them? But uh, yeah, so Clue was a 1985 film that originally starred Tim Curry and a bunch of other stars from the era, including Madeline Kahn, Christopher Lloyd, and Leslie Ann Warren. Um, but it is now being remade or rebooted to star Ryan Reynolds and uh, at least Jason Bateman. That sounds good. Did you see that other film that they were in? Uh, was it the uh, Swap or the Change? Or they both urinated into a fountain and they changed bodies or something like that? Um, uh, <laughs> did I dream this? I don't think that's a real movie. <laughs> I think you just wrote another movie the way I write movies, is you just make them up and you think they're real. So uh, maybe I was watching like uh, uh, Big, and then I drank a lot of beer, and I went to sleep, and I dreamed about urinating in a fountain with Ryan Reynolds and Jason Bateman. Which would be awesome. <laughs> Absolutely awesome. Hey, if you can fantasize about doing anything with them, <laughs> it doesn't have yeah. to be involving, uh, you know, going to the bathroom. Come on now. So the film is to be directed by the Muppets director, James, I'm going to say Bobbin, but I bet you it's Bobbin. No, James Bobbin. We're sticking with Bobbin. It's got to be Bobbin. Right, okay. So James Bobbin, who directed the Muppets, is an early talk to direct the Ryan Reynolds movie. Um, and also, another Ryan Reynolds con- connection, and I'm sure it's not a coincidence, is that the writers, Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick, uh, who wrote for Deadpool, are writing the script for Clue. Well, that's good, because they did a good job with those, so I think they'll do a good job with this. Yeah, and James Bobbin actually uh, most recently directed the live-action Dora the, uh, and the Lost City of Gold, which actually was a really good, funny movie. Yeah, I have to say that's really good. So this may be one of those times where the... Remake is actually better. Mm. This could be the. I don't know. I th- this could be it. It's possible. They've got a shot. I have a high regard for the '85 version. Oh, I love the. I love that version. Yeah, but I think if there's someone who could succeed, they would be the people. You're right. You're right. I and mean, yep, and certainly what Ryan Reynolds did with Deadpool, and we know he was very involved in getting that off the ground and done the way it was done. So yeah. But if they fail, yep. we will just laugh at them to no end. So, <laughs> rioting—it's a hundred percent or nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Either Oscar-worthy or we're we're tearing, we're torching the place down. Yep. Okay, so I guess that was everything in eighties news. Dun, 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 dun. All right. So hey, today we're going to be talking about one-hit wonders from the nineteen eighties, and a little bit later we'll be speaking with Todd Kerpelman. Doesn't that sound like a nineteen eighties character move, Kerpelman? <laughs> it does. I can't decide if he's the the teacher bad guy in the movie though Mm. or if he's the kid who wins the day yet oh yeah you're right i was thinking of it like a principal was shouting it out you know like oh kerpelman but yeah he could be the t could be the it could be the other way around yeah he could be the principal or he could be the kid with the skateboard we don't know i guess we'll have to wait till we talk to him (laughs) i guess (laughs) and then typecast him as one of those okay but before we talk to todd you and i are going to discuss one hit wonders and so Todd, ultimately, and it's an interesting conversation we want to have with him, so he wrote this paper analyzing whether or not the 1980s had the most one-hit wonders. Any kind of guess or feeling as to whether you think the decade has the most? I would guess the 80s have the most. That would be my guess. I agree. So he better not mess it up. (laughs) He better fudge those numbers if he needs to. Yeah, he better do what he's supposed to do and help us out. Without us having to say it directly. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to lead the witness, but if I have to, you know, <laughs> get in there and slap him around a little bit. This is, you're getting. You're. I could tell you're getting stir crazy, threatening the guests before they've even come on. Well, I've been quarantined now for about four hours, <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm losing my mind being 
quarantined. I, I don't like it. Just to be clear, you're self-quarantining. You don't have any symptoms. You don't no, suspect no, 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 you're no. sick. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sick or anything, but, you know, this is how the world works now. Hey, good news is if everybody does it, you know, this is kind of like, look, we think of everything in terms of uh, 1980s. This is not a put-on, guys. We have a podcast because we do that, not the other way around. So this kind of makes me think of the thing, you know, where, look, if we just wait long enough, we'll figure out who's got it. Holy crap. I could have saved myself being quarantined by pulling the thing thing at work. (laughs) I could have got blood from everybody because I got a torch there. I could have done this at work and saved us a lot of a lot of screwing around here. Since it doesn't really test for coronavirus for COVID nineteen, would you just? You don't know that. That's true. Or I guess if you got enough blood out of the people, you could kill it with the torch. Kill the blood. Do you know how freaky it would be if I did it and that thing popped out of the blood? <laughs> yes. That would be insane. And awesome. <laughs> I'd be terrified if it happened in real life. So now in this scenario, do you have your uh, workers, your, your, your uh, fellow employees there strapped to chairs? Oh, yeah. You got to do it the right way. <laughs> first, first, we watch the movie yeah. to, so they feel comfortable with what's happening. Mm-hmm. So you want to set the mood. Right. So you have to watch the movie first. Mm-hmm. And then once I strap them in, now the terror begins. <laughs> the absolute horror of... Am I the one who's going <laughs> to fail this test? And then just like in the thing, then, a couple of weeks, we're going to find out who has it and doesn't have it. If everybody stays home, look, right. we'll get through this real fast. Stay home, dummies. That's right. Better safe than sorry. All right. So let's talk about something fun instead. So right. one hit wonder. So we both think that the 80s had the most. Uh, we'll find out from Todd a little bit later. So in the meantime, we challenged our Facebook friends to uh, chime in with one hit wonders that they thought would stump us. And the thing about a one-hit wonder is, you know, the idea is you've got a group that's got one hit song. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're a hit for a while and they go away and you forget about them. So right. the, the thought was, could they come up with a one-hit wonder that they think that we wouldn't remember? I highly doubt that. I think so, too. If they've listened to the show, they know either, either you're going to get it or I'm going to get it. We're both going to get it. We cover a lot of ground between the two of us, so I think we're, I think we're good. Yeah. So without further ado, then I'll just. Uh, so someone put this mm. together for us so that we don't know what they are. But I think that to make it fair, um, we should only listen to like the first, let's say, what, five seconds, 10 seconds? Let's do. Hmm. Let's do six seconds. Six seconds. Okay. So we'll do the. We'll do six seconds and um, then we'll guess. Okay. Right. And then you and I can actually talk about whether or not, you know, they really were one hit wonders because what. What our friends don't know is that uh, with the benefit of our, of our guest, Todd Kerpelman, I got access to the data he used, and he uh, later on will be talking with him about how he determined whether or not the 1980s had the most one-hit wonders. He used Billboard's Top 100 since all of the data available for the Billboard Top 100 for all of time. So this goes back to the 50s through today. Um, what this doesn't cover, though, is other charts. So a song may have charted on a more, you know, uh, very niche sort of chart, as a hit, but we're talking about the top 100. Sounds good. Here's the, uh, I'm just going to hit shuffle on this list and we'll see what we get here. I know it. I already know it. I don't know it. That is Johnny, are you queer boy? Yes, it is. Darn hey, skippy I, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I should have known that one because you taught me about that one on an episode not too long ago. So yeah. I'm going to keep playing it for a few seconds here. Let's see. Remembered that, yeah, yeah. One of my one of my favorite punk bands covered that, the Screeching Weasels. So that's why I immediately recognized it. Oh, so did you first learn about it from that? 
No, no, no. I already, I already knew the song, but mm. they always remind me of it. So you're right. That's Johnny. Are you queer from Josie Cotton? And that was sent in by Nathan Wallace. And can we say this is a one hit wonder? Because I don't know of any other songs she did. Yeah, Josie Cotton. That's it. Let's see here. Josie Cotton. Well, okay, here's a note. So actually, it turns out Johnny Are You Queer is not even on the Billboard Top 100. But it did. So in that sense, it's not a uh, one-hit wonder, you know, what we're using to measure it. But in 1982, it did reach number 38 on the Billboard Club Play Singles Chart and number 8 on the Canadian Charts. So in that sense, you know, it was a hit. But she did have two other songs on the Billboard Top 100, um, or two songs, I should say, because as I said, Johnny is not on there. He Could Be the One, which reached 74, and Jimmy Loves Mary Ann, which reached 82. And those came out in 82 and 84. Hmm. Never heard of them. I vaguely remember the one about... Uh, Jimmy? Jimmy Loves Somebody, vaguely. Okay, mm-hmm. very good. Here is song number... Oh, that's easy. <laughs> yeah, that's an easy one. Come on, guys. Really? That's a, that's a safety dance. That's a safety dance. Oh, come on. That's that, men without they, hats. They thought that was going to stomp us? <laughs> what low regard does our audience have for us? Uh, well, okay. But hey, hey guys. Yeah, good, good. All right. We, hey, we appreciate the um, mm-hmm. sending it in. And um, I don't believe men without hats. I'm trying to think if they had another hit. Didn't Mm-mm. they also, was it Men Without Hats that did Pop Goes the World? I have no idea. If they got another hit, it might have been at a celebrity softball game, <laughs> be my guess. So Pop Goes the World, I remember that one. And so now I've learned here that Men Without Hats actually had one. So, so Pop Goes the World uh, charted at 59 on the Billboard Top 100, but they also had another song in 83, which was the same year as The Safety Dance. And actually, it came out a month before called I Like, which reached 84. Wow, I would have thought they would have went with unsafety dance. <laughs> they just keep different versions. Yeah, just keep doing it over again, you know. Even safer. You know, yeah, even the even safer dance, that would be awesome. You know, we need now the uh, self-quarantine dance where you dance by yourself. Oh, wait, that's a whole other 80s thing, too. Uh, Billy Idol already did that. There you go. All right. Now we need a quarantine playlist in addition to a quarantine movie list. Oh, I'm working on it. Ugh. Uh, and that was sent in by, oh, this was sent in by our, maybe our Serbian friend, hmm, Bernard. Yeah, Bernard. good luck with that name. Bernard, buddy. I think it's Bernard. <laughs> Bernard, you're going to have to help us out with your name there. Or you can you can message us uh, on the Facebook page and let us know. Yeah, if you can't pronounce the name, you're the smart one on this thing. I, I got no hope. Well, you know, I did Google it because I wanted to be able to say it for um, something uh, something else that he had sent in. I think it was the uh, maybe Crash Madness or something. And um, I got Bernard, and I don't remember the the last name came up a few different variations, so I don't know which one was correct. But um, Google may be wrong too. So anyway, hey, buddy, he knows who he is, <laughs> and help us out so we so we can identify you properly because we appreciate your participation. From now on, your last name is Bull. <laughs> okay, Bernard Bull. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, so here is number three, one hit wonder that uh, our fans are trying to stump us with here. Is fans too strong? Maybe I should say listeners. Our listeners are trying. Friends. Our friends are trying to stump us here. Okay, here's number three. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. All right, this one's on you, buddy. Oh, man, I love this song. This song is White Horse by Laid Back, I think it is. Laid Back. Let's see. 
Yes, <laughs> white horse by laid back. See, that, that's why we're a good team. Yes. So this is the one. If you want to ride, don't ride the white horse. You don't remember yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Never heard it. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> you know, that in that song, it sounds to me like a song that would have been like in an 80s movie, like uh, Beverly Hills Cop or something when he's at the strip club. <laughs> So that song uh, was uh, released in June of 1984, and it peaked at 26 on the Billboard Top 100 with 18 weeks on the chart. And venture a guess whether they had any other hits on the Top 100? Uh, since I never heard of them, I'm going to go no. You're right. All right. Okay, let's see. We got another one here. Let's see what's next on the shuffle here. Hmm. You and I in a little toy. Oh, come on. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Are you I think stumped? they're throwing us softballs because they feel bad for us. We should just skip past this one. Yeah, we don't even have to say that one. Maybe, you know what? Hey, listener, listener, do you know what it is? <laughs> How about that? We'll turn it back on the, yeah, on our yeah, uh, you, friends. You guys here. go ahead and listen to that one and figure that one out. <laughs> that one, I will say, though, was sent in by Mike Wilson. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate the softball. All right, let's see here. We got another one here. Uh, uh. Yes. Wow, that that six seconds almost didn't have enough. I know what it is. You know from that first... I knew what it was the second it came on. Oh, all right. So then you go. It's madness. Right. Mm-hmm. Our house. Our, our house. house. In the middle of the street. It's our it's our castle and our key. Oh, yeah. yeah. See, that's what appealed to you. See, that stuck out with you because you're like thinking like Dungeons and Dragons way. Yeah, if, if I had made this video, they would have been playing Dungeons and Dragons in the middle of the street. <laughs> While you probably were. Uh <laughs> The original LARPer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is how literal I was as a kid and, and how naive I was. I took people at their word, and so listening to these songs, I didn't understand they were poetry. I just yeah. took them literally. So when they said, our house in the middle of our street or you the street. Didn't, you did not think it was in the middle of the street. I thought it was not in the middle of the block or the city block. I thought it was literally in the middle of the road. Uh. Like, and I thought, well, that's interesting. They made a song about something interesting, but it is, you know, it's an unusual house. Yeah, that's how... Look, I'm saying literal, not dumb. <laughs> I was hey, very put literal. The, put them on the list of people we have to talk to to find out if they thought the same thing. <laughs> I, hey, I will, but... Put them on the list. I don't think they did, but I... I, I okay, and, and I don't know our house had any other hits. You as mean far Madness? As could, yeah, I'm sorry, Madness. One, yeah. one Step Beyond. Okay, well, there you go. One yeah, actually, Step Beyond. Bam, bam, bam. Hmm. Yeah, see, I don't even see that. So, okay, so it turns out, you're right, Madness did have other hits. One Step Beyond's not on here, so it might be one of those ones that, that charted somewhere else. Um, or it could just be that I really like that song. <laughs> yes, a one-hit wonder for you. Uh, so it was released in May of 1983. It peaked at 40 and was four weeks on the chart, but there was two other songs on the Billboard Top 100 in the 1980s. One was It Must Be Love, which actually peaked higher than Our House at 33 in October of 1983. And another song, The Sun in the Rain, which uh, peaked at 72, that was March of 84. Uh, and that was on the chart for nine weeks. So both of those other songs were, I don't know, let's say more popular or had uh, greater, longer legs than Our House even. Inconceivable. All right, so let's go back to the shuffle here and see what shuffle, other shuffle, shuffle. brain busters our friends on Facebook have for us. Here is one. Let's see what this is. Ah, yeah. Uh, you got it? Yeah. That's uh, Der Commissar mm-hmm. by After the Fire. Yep. And of course, I love this song, but I also love the original version by, which artist do you remember? 
I don't remember who did the original. I remember, I remember, I remember this version. I think we need to do, we can do it. I've got some of this together already. We can do a whole episode on, is this a cover or not? Mm. Songs that were huge in the eighties. they actually were covers of earlier songs. Wow, that's 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 pretty good. Yeah, we had a Facebook post that had some of them on it recently. Mm-hmm. I think like as a as a quiz or something. But there's yeah. there's dozens, and um, this is one. So the original song was by Falco. Oh, that's right. And it was in uh, German, and um, it's also a very good version. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, they're both good versions. I forgot about the Falco version there for a second. After the fire came out with their version of Der Kommissar in '83, it reached a peak position of 31. Four weeks on the chart. I guess I'll ask you this first. Did they, do you think they had any other hits on the Billboard Top 100 in the 1980s? I'm going to say because they have a really good name, Yeah. yes. Uh, they did. Uh, Dancing in the Shadows came out also in 83, a few months later, and that reached a peak position of 85. So our, our production assistant, Lonnie, gave this to me. And this is from Wikipedia. This captures the story a little bit better than I remember with some more details. So in the United States and the UK, Falco's version did not perform well, despite topping the charts in Europe and Scandinavia in early 82. In mid-82, after the fire records an English version. So Falco's is in German, just like the original uh, Amade- Rock Me Amadeus. It's also called Der, Der Commissar and released as a single, but it floundered. Coming off a tour opening for Van Halen, after the fire was working on material for a new album, when in December they announced on stage during a concert that they're disbanding. Um, so both the After the Fire versions and Falco version was rising in the U.S. Uh, I'm sorry, ri- rising on the Canadian charts, but it hadn't done well on the U.S. charts. It's around that time that Laura Branigan, she has a producer uh, working on her second album. They take the uh, melody and arrangement of Der Commissar, recreated. It sounds very much, I think, like the, I think it sounds like the, the After the Fire version. And she creates a song called Deep in the Dark, where they just change the lyrics. They, cre- they use the same music, they just change the lyrics, and it means something completely different. It's very bizarre. Then, finally, the After the Vi- Fire version comes out and hits the U.S. charts, the Hot 100, and starts rising. And the, uh, they credit the song's music video as uh, on MTV with, with uh, launching and, you know, and help uh, propel its popularity in the U.S., yeah, videos were great at propelling things in the 80s. Oh, this is interesting, too. So, actually, Falco's version did chart on the U.S. Billboard Disco Top 80 at 10, whereas the After the Fire version on that same chart was 17. So, After the Fire beat Falco in every other regard except on the disco charts. That's, that's something. All right, so that, and that one was sent in by Laura Mooney Graham. Thanks, Laura. Now, here's another one from our fans on Facebook trying to stump us with a one-hit wonder from the 1980s. Yeah, all right, I got this one. There's six seconds. Da, da, yeah. Oh, 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 oh. So the tricky thing about this, do you remember the name of the song? Uh, is it Jungle Boy? Mm, that's close. Uh, Tarzan Boy. Tarzan Boy, yeah. The tricky thing is remember. oh, I just remembered the name of the group. Go ahead. Uh, the name of the group is Baltimore. Yes. And this is one of the records I had when I first started DJing, you know, when I was like 13 or 14. And it probably came out a couple years after that, but I had this like on 12 inch, probably had a bunch of different versions of it. So that's how I know this. That's how I know a lot of songs is because I had the 45 or the dance mix for DJing. Yeah. Well, that's your thing. That's your, yeah. that's your gig. So that uh, Tarzan Boy by Baltimore, and that was sent in by Jamie Robinson. And that is a great song. Thanks, Jamie. So they def- they definitely had no other hits. Uh, well, it turns out they did. What? Yeah, I'm surprised too. So Tarzan Boy was released in November of '85. It reached a peak position of 64. 
uh, that's probably right. I, maybe I would have thought it was a little higher, but and I was surprised. According to this, it was only four weeks on the chart. I, I feel like I heard that song all the time too. But well, once again, I like that song, so I assumed it would have charted higher and been on the radio a lot more. Yeah, and it also had another hit in '86 called "Living in the Background," which reached '87 with uh, three weeks on the chart. Huh. Our associate producer here is saying that we should try one more. This one, one more to see because. Right. Uh, she was curious if you would know what this was because she doesn't think I, I would do. But maybe I do. All right, here we go. I think you do. Let's see. All right, here's okay. All this right, last one up. here. Let's see. I know what that is. I don't even know anymore. I have no idea what that was, so. That's Grim Reaper. Yes. You and hell. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Grim Reaper. Well, of course it is. I have no You're idea. Damn right, man. Jeez, I feel bad that I don't even know who Grim Reaper is. I feel like you're not going to stump me on hair metal or thrash <laughs> metal or early '80s metal. It ain't going to happen. Okay, so I'm learning here though that it doesn't actually appear on the top 100 chart again that we use. We've used here mm-hmm. for our conversation, but in 1984, it does appear in the Billboard 200. I think it also topped the adult contemporary um, charts at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Now, it's what, you see, I got a new thing now. I'm just going to pause when you say something ridiculous <laughs> and see if you can keep from laughing. Yeah, I couldn't on that one. But you'll, you, I know you're pretty good at it usually. Yeah. So did, did Gr- Grim Reaper have any other hits, do you think? Mm, you not, no, recall? they did not. Yeah. yeah, so we found no other hits for them. This is interesting, though, and maybe you remember this, that Grim Reaper had a song that was used as the title track for a 1987 woman's prison movie of the same name. Hmm. Does it have Tawny Katane in it? Uh, I can't say. I don't have that information mm, here. Something about women in prison, I'm sure, in the title. Lust for Freedom. Uh, yeah, I never heard of that. We've probably seen it just on cable and didn't realize what we were watching. I'm sure I saw the box, you know, the box of it, the cover of it in a rental store. We, yeah, but I'm just saying, you know, you're flipping through the channels. Yeah. Click, click. Ooh, what's this? I see in 87, I would have been 16, so I would have been more daring. Had to come out younger, though. Yeah, I would have been one of those things where I passed over. Like, yeah. okay, I know that's for adults. I shouldn't watch that. I'm not ready for it. Yeah, we would definitely have stopped on it, though, and we would have never known what it was. And that one was sent in by Greg Sexton. Thanks, Greg, for sending that in. Okay, so anything else? No, I think we should go talk to our guest now. Okay, so in a moment, we're going to find out whether or not the 1980s had the most one-hit wonders or not when we return with our guest, Todd Kerpelman. guest today is a former game designer who currently works as a developer advocate for Firebase, a division of Google. But his most important work came last year when he developed a set of queries to determine whether the 1980s had the most one-hit wonders. You can read the findings in his seminal piece, Did the 80s Really Have the Most One-Hit Wonders? on TowardsDataScience.com. And you can find his other wonky pieces of literature on medium.com. Please welcome to the show, Todd Kerpelman. I will. And I got that right, right, Todd? You got that right. Yeah, you, you pronounced my name right and everything. It's excellent. And I've got to tell you, I think you have a very 80s character uh, name. Like, I can hear a principal yelling, Kerpelman! 
you know, after their office has been filled with popcorn or something. Yeah, I suppose you could you could do that with the last name, the first name. Like there's, you know, Todd was always kind of the the villain with the pop ah. collar, who was kind of, you know, like <laughs> you kids are you kids right. are never going to take over the community center. We're going <laughs> right. to close it down and build a golf club or something. I don't know. Right. I don't know whatever whatever rich guy's yes. name Todd did. Challenging the protagonist to a ski race or a regatta. Exactly. Winner take all. Like what do you say? Right. <laughs> then I show up in my fancy equipment and somehow still lose. <laughs> <laughs> it's because you have that vest or that uh, sweater tied around your neck. That's true. It's not, it's not aerodynamic. <laughs> <laughs> so, Todd, um, the reason why we wanted to talk to you about uh, or talk to you today is because, you know, we've been talking for a long time now, many episodes into our show about how we are proving objectively, or it's our goal, that the 1980s was the best for pop culture We'll fight your decade. And your piece uh, in Toward Data Science was the first, you know, I, I suppose, real objective, you can't argue, uh, intended to be a, an objective analysis of pop culture from the 1980s. Specifically, you took a look at uh, whether the 1980s really, as your piece is called, did the, did the 80s really have the most one-hit wonders? Um, just so we get a little bit of a background, are you an 80s kid? Uh, is that what... Would even lead to your interest in that decade to begin with? Uh, yes, I guess you'd say I'm an, I'm an 80s kid. Uh, certainly, I you know got my musical tastes growing up on MTV back when MTV still had you know music videos and you know listening to right. listening to was it Big Country or was that <laughs> in a big country? yeah Big Country by Big Country right Yes, easy yes um, yeah so like you know listening to listening to all that music and watching MTV and all of that that's definitely sort of where I first acquired my musical taste. The whole uh, article was originally inspired when sort of my, my sister uh, had come out to visit me in California and we had gone on like sort of a, a little mini road trip and we were listening to like the One Hit Wonders radio station on, I think it was like Google Play Music. And like it was, a, you know, a whole bunch of like these really amazing One Hit Wonders. And we sort of started talking a little bit about like, you know, why is it the 80s had, you know, had all these great One Hit Wonders. And then, like, I started wondering, you know, is that actually true? Did the 80s have the most one-hit wonders? Or is that just something that, you know, because my sister and I were, you know, children of the 80s, we only think that. And maybe, right. you know, the kids these days think that the 2000s or the, you know, had the most one-hit wonders or something. Oh. So that sort of inspired the – that's how I spent some of my uh, – I guess it was my Christmas break was, um, <laughs> you know, spending time analyzing data sets because that, that's what I do in my free time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Is that what you do during your working time also? Uh, yeah, often I'll do that too. Um, I, yeah, I, my, my role, my, my job is a, I'm a developer advocate for a uh, little division of Google called Firebase. Um, and we make developer tools. And among those is um, we, we use a service called BigQuery, which allows you to sort, of th sort through large chunks of data. And so I've been writing some lessons in how to, how to do that. And so I kind of was a little bit in this like processing large chunks of data state of mind when I sort of came to start writing the article. To your point, to keep it objective, so where did you get the data that you could even use to analyze hits from the various decades? Um, so I kind of, you know, searched around on the internet and I found there was this uh, kind of website I'd never heard about there called Data World, where someone put together an entire data set of the billboard, like, you know, top 100 of basically, I think for every week, they had every song in the top 100 and what the ranking was. And I was sort of able to take that and consolidate it down so I could sort of get for every performer, um, for every song, what their top rank was when they were somewhere on the Billboard Top 100. 
And that was sort of my starting point. And your starting point, as you indicate, um, your first thought was, uh, if you're on the top 100, hey, does that mean you were you had a hit necessarily? Maybe I'm jumping ahead here. Yep. No, that's that's exactly it. Is it's oh, okay if they're in the top 100, and you know, then then they had a hit. So let's just look for bands that were only in the top 100 once. Um, right. But the problem with that is uh, there's a lot of songs in the top 100 that you never heard of before, and would really wouldn't qualify as as a hit. Um, like there was I, one of my favorites was there's this band called, um, double image that had a song called night pulse. Um, and I encourage you to go and check out the music video because it is like, <laughs> it's, you know, you clearly, they had a whole like artistic vision and we're trying to tell this story, but also no budget. And it's sort of like I was saying, it, it was kind of as if Tommy Wiseau like was like, I'm going to direct music videos. That's kind of how this <laughs> And the song was, and yeah, I, you know, I don't think, I, I think the song right now has like 500 views on YouTube. So if, if everyone who listens goes and like, you know, watches this, watches this music video, they'll suddenly have this huge bump and they won't know why. Um, right. So, and I know, and it, and the flip side of that was, you said that, uh, uh, Kaja Gugu's hit, had a hit too shy, which we would think of them as one hit wonders, mm-hmm. but surprise, surprise, they also had a hit in the top 100 hang on now, which charted at 78. Right. Yes. So, and so technically they would be a two hit wonder and, right. you know, and I'm like, well, that clearly, you know, if, if, if I have a definition of one hit wonder that doesn't include Kajagugu, then I probably need to fix my, my definition. So, you know, like Einstein's uh, theories, you know, get these names, yours is going to be the Kajagugu theorem or something. Exactly. Yes. It's the Kajagugu theory of one hit wonders. <laughs> so... So yeah, then next, my next thought was, okay, well, maybe I can just look at, maybe I'll just look at songs that, or look at performers who had a song that reached the top 40, because, you know, the top 40, that's a lot more, um, that's generally what we think of as hits. You know, we listen to the top 40 countdown on radio, or, you know, we used to back when we all listened to the radio. Right. And that started to look a little more promising. Um, but again, like, it was sort of weird, particularly when you got into, I feel like this happened more often in like the 90s, where you had bands that you definitely would not think of as, as one hit wonders that qualified as one hit wonders in this sort of top 40, um, in this top 40 definition. And I think they include a lot of, right. I, my, my theory is they include a lot of alternative bands or bands in other genres that became more popular right. after the eighties, perhaps where maybe, you know, because they were popular in like the alternative, um, realm some of their popularity kind of you know leaked into i guess what billboard would list as sort of their pop top 100 um so for example like blink 182 technically they only had one song in you know in the top 40 uh, in the billboard top 100 but that's also i think because billboard was really tracking them separately and you know their own alternative um you know 100 charts and that included you know this included other bands like weezer and missy elliott and you know rush and beck and cypress hill and like I said, I don't, I wouldn't count any of them as one hit wonders. Right. So yeah, this probably gets into more data science stuff than uh, is really interesting to, to most people. But I kind of just revised my definition of, okay, let's find a band had one song in like the top 25 and then no other songs in the top 75. And um, that got me, I think, a better definition of one hit wonder that sort of included most of the one hit wonders that we know about but also didn't include, you know, bands like, like Beck and Weezer. Right. So, and at that point, 
so prior to this, when, when you were sort of using a broader approach, 1980s surprisingly already charted at the lowest uh, as far as the decades, the 60s through the 2000s. Then when you tweaked your, uh, your query, as you just described it, to you know, more narrow, once again, surprisingly to me, 1980s was at the bottom of these, the five decades that you looked at. It was, yeah. I looked at the songs from the 60s up through the 2000s, and because at the time I think I wrote this, it was 2019, so we didn't have all our, you know, we didn't have all our uh, 2010 data in yet. Um, but yeah, basically, like, you sort of, it was almost uh, uh, like a, what's an upside down, a parabola shape, um, a, mm-hmm. a, a, or we'll call it, it's a U-shape, um, where basically, like, you sort of had a lot of one-hit wonders in the 60s kind of decreased in the 70s, actually hit its lowest point in the 80s, and then got higher in the 90s again, and then much higher in uh, the 2000s. Right. Um, yeah, which, you know, sort of surprised me. I think, like like you all, I tend to think of the 80s as, like, the golden era of one-hit wonders. Um, and so I was a little surprised to see, you know, this trend where it actually seemed to have the fewest number of one-hit wonders. And you pointed out, so at this point in your analysis, you pointed out something else interesting was that um, the 2000s had by far the runaway most one-hit wonders, again, based on your your criteria, as you described it earlier. Someone mm-hmm. in the top 40, but nothing else charting uh, when the top was at 75. Right. Right. And then you noticed in the 2000s, something that may cause uh, an issue with your data because we saw a whole other, uh, a whole slew of folks starting in the '90s started uh, featuring other artists. So you have a main artist featuring somebody else, and that can you explain why that would have caused uh, some maybe erroneous data or counting? Yeah. Um, so basically, what I what I looked at was I tended to you know define groups that had one hit wonders, you know, um, coalescing on their actual performer name. So. <clears throat> Um, so what I would do is, you know, I would just kind of look at, you know, any kind of performer with a unique name in this Billboard Top 100 chart and, you know, just sort of see how many hits they had. And that's how I would determine if they were one hit wonders. Um, but, you know, one thing that that happened certainly a lot more in kind of the late 90s and 2000s was you had these these cameos, right? You sort of had, um, you know, 50 Cent featuring Justin Timberlake or, you know, 50 Cent featuring, you know, Nate Dogg or whoever. And each one of those bands was counted separately in my data set. So all of a sudden, you know, 50 Cent looks like he is part of four bands that were all considered one-hit wonders just because each of those performers has different names. Right, and I, I thought it was, I like how you um, also did the, the, what the flip side of it was that uh, you take a group like, uh, you take a song like Ebony and Ivory, where you've got Paul McCartney uh, singing with Stevie yes. Wonder, both huge hit makers, when you consider them as a group, however, it looks right. like they've only yes. had one hit. Yeah, they 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 were a one hit wonder of the eighties, technically speaking, if you look at if you look at just their performer name and Dancing in the Streets by David Bowie and Mick Jagger, um, and you know, and so on and so forth. So, so you got two problems, the featuring and the and and the and, yeah. And so this again gets into kind of uh, probably more more detail than than most people care to hear. But um I basically used some the kind of regular expression magic, which is a way of taking a, a string, it's a way of taking a, a, a text label and kind of uh, condensing it down into something. And basically what I did was I tried to combine every, you know, some artist featuring some other artist uh, to just sort of that first artist's name. I tended to do the same with, with um, any artist that had an and or an ampersand in their name as well, because most of those were duets. Um, 
And that tended to then sort of coalesce down most of our, um, that tended to coalesce down most of our actual duets, our, you know, featurings with, into sort of one single artist. I did, there were a few, there was a little bit of kind of collateral damage along the way uh, in that I think a few different bands did get combined into a single band when they shouldn't have. Um, and this is just because, you know, you have, you have bands like, for instance, Hootie and the Blowfish, where through once they sort of got through my little, you know, name labeling system, ended up as, as Hootie. And most of the time that's fine because it turns out there aren't any other Hootie and the whatever bands out there. There's only Hootie and the Blowfish. Um, but, you know, I think like one example I had noted was Love and Rockets uh, from the 80s and Love and Kisses from the 70s both actually turned into the same artist named Love. Um, and so Love and Rockets didn't end up getting included in my final 80s, um, in my final 80s tally. So there was a little bit of uh, lost data there, unfortunately, but it seemed to be pretty small. I didn't end up with a lot of places where completely different bands got combined into one. Um, you know, I think it's like probably somewhere in the order of like six or eight different bands. But for the most part, this certainly fixed all of the, all of the featuring issues. One more thing about the featuring, because it, mm-hmm. it doesn't look good for the 80s yet. So we haven't gotten to the final results. We've mm-hmm. talked about some results as we get there, some different queries as your results, as you're refining your query, rather. Uh, uh, regarding the featuring, I think it's interesting to note, though, that you know, something that works in favor of the 80s is that, as you point out, we see this increase of featuring artists starting in the 90s and beyond. Mm-hmm. Because artists mm-hmm. prior to the 90s, they didn't need anybody else. They were successful <laughs> and great all on their own, right? You, you got your 50 cent, maybe he needs somebody else, but you know. Maybe. You got your Goo, they're fine. They don't, they don't need anyone else to help them out. No, yeah. not at all. I mean, Flock of Seagulls, they got that hair done yeah. by, he got it by, done by himself. Yeah. Taco, Taco didn't need any help. No. Yeah, that's true. That'd be, that'd be, they didn't need anyone to feature. They just they could handle exactly. it all on their own. It's like we did things in the old days on our by our show on our own shoulders. And uh, there's some analogy <laughs> metaphor there. Okay, so now that you've done all that work, and you, you know you can see there may be some data there that that's you know you know garbage might be a strong word, but a small amount of data that may uh, uh, you know be anomalous in, in in a bad way. Okay, but here we are again with the final results. Ray, do you want to take a guess? Let have to see if Ray can guess. Where does the 80s stack out of the five decades, one through five? What do you think it ranks now with all of Todd's tweaks? Um, I'm going to guess at the bottom. Yes, it's still at the bottom. Yeah. yeah. With the number one decade being the 1960s. Yeah, the 1960s, um, you know, far and away had the, had the most number of one-hit wonders out of, uh, out of sort of all the decades that I looked at. Um, yeah. 1980s was at the bottom still. And then the 2000s, after we sort of, you know, co- combined down all of the featuring artists into one, um, was sort of second. So they had sort of the second um, fewest number of one-hit wonders, but um, and by by a little bit. But it was still sort of the 80s that definitely had the fewest, and at least looking at my data, the 60s yeah. that had the so most. So I did a little bit of research, and I don't think I know you've got some theories as to why mm-hmm. we may think the 80s has the most one-hit wonders, although the data doesn't bear it out. And I want to talk about that in a moment. But I don't think you touched touched on this. But in doing sure. some research, I think I wonder how this might play into the results. Is that during the 1950s and 60s, you know, the 45 was king. Uh, it was the we had essentially a singles market. Album sales didn't really start till you know started to pick up 
regarding pop music till the mid sixties. And then, you know, for, for a long, for many decades after that, I found what's known as the album era was the mid sixties through the two thousands. So prior to that fifties and sixties, you know, when you've got folks as big as Elvis Presley, they're, they're primarily driven their sales by singles. So I wonder if that at all plays into, um, why it seems not why, why the data shows us that we have more one hit wonders in the sixties or not. I don't know what the, I know there's a gap there. I don't know what, you know, some kind of intellectual gap there. Some, I don't know what it is, but I sense that may have something to do with it. I think it's a really good theory. Um, I think part of it might also be because my data only goes as far back into the sixties. You might get some artists that, you know, had hits in the fifties and sixties that, you know, sort of got included as one hit wonders because their fifties hits didn't get counted. But I think also to a large degree, you're right. Like those, those artists back then didn't need to, yeah, sell entire albums. They didn't need to convince you to buy, you know, the, the whole thing. They, you know, if they just had one hit song and you were like, great, I'm going to go out and buy my copy of the monster mash. Cause <laughs> you know, it's just a, just a 45. Um, that could certainly account for a lot of bands that were just like, Hey, we're going to make, you know, one song, get it out there. And you know, we'll make a decent living as a, as a, as an artist. I, I like that theory also playing into the 1990s being so well, but the 2000s is pretty significantly different here. And we'll post these results on Facebook and how to find Todd's uh, article from uh, toward data science, where you can, you can find out more about how he uh, got to these numbers, but it mm-hmm. is surprising how much more nineties are versus the 2000s. Ray and I tend to think that music after the eighties, has just started getting increasingly worse. I think literally now top hit music is just a bunch of noises and people mumbling <laughs> Maybe so, uh, but it's, 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 I guess it's surprising to me that how different, uh, those two decades look. Um, I was going to suggest that maybe technology had some sort of play in those numbers, but again, the difference between the nineties and the two thousands is, I don't know how you account for that necessarily. Yeah. It's, it's large. It's a fairly big, you, you know, the nineties again, sort of had a fairly large number of one hit wonders compared to the two decades on either side. Um, yeah. you know, I think, Again, sort of looking at my, my raw data, the 1980s had 91, um, the 2000s had 96, and then the 1990s had 133. And yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't have a good explanation for it. I don't know if it's because suddenly, you know, people stopped buying albums and they were just, you know, downloading or you know buying their their singles off of off of iTunes or what have you. That could explain part of it, but then you would expect to see that trend right. continue in the 2000s or, or something. And so I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know sort of where that came from. How This actually change. raises a, you know, a sort of a, a question that maybe you looked into. How does um, Billboard even uh, track their songs that they get on these charts in the first place? Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm assuming, you know, it used to be, yeah, they sort of talked to record stores. Right. These days I'm, I'm, I'm kind of guessing they're able to get data from, you know, maybe hopefully maybe, you know, um, sites like Apple or Spotify, you know, YouTube share their data or share some of that data with billboard. But, um, I honestly don't know. Um, so it could be significantly better if these companies are sharing their data, but it could also be significantly worse if billboard sort of has, if, you know, they can't really rely on, on record stores these days to kind of get at that data. Right. And you know, and I wish I recalled, but I don't remember offhand, but now I do remember that I did some research about this some time ago and how, it won't surprise you, how they got these numbers changed over time. 
but you're right. I think it was in the 80s and 70s, but I think definitely in the 80s uh, and maybe into the 90s. They had something called Scantron, I think, where literally, you know, records were created as albums are purchased at stores, you know, where that, that scanning generates a record somewhere of or, or a count of a particular album that's sold. But hmm. um, so I wonder if, yeah, maybe the discrepancy uh, in the data between the decades has to do with simply how they measured the, you know, hits. Um, hmm. That's, that's yeah. going to have to be version two of your analysis, I think. I guess so. Yeah. I'll have to figure out, you know, where, where that data came, came from. Cause yeah, you're right. Like it's, uh, yeah, if, if you have sort of unreliable data as, as a starting point, obviously your results are going to be a little, a little suspicious mm, so as well. So what we're saying is this is wrong. The eighties is not the, the, have the least, but. Well, my, my question to you would be, what's your favorite one hit wonder? Oh, Ooh. Wow. That's going to be the hardest, harder than answering all the other questions we've given you so far. I know. I mean, well, the the funny thing is, you know, if you had asked me this uh, before I had done this data, my answer would have been take on me because it's, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. Um, However, technically speaking, take on me does not count as a one hit wonder because um, AHA had, what did they have? The Sun Always Shines on TV. And I actually think they had Cry Wolf, which I don't remember to this day. Um, which, uh, yeah, like which, which sort of disqualifies them. Technically they are a three hit wonder. Um, <laughs> similarly, like and, and, I, I could have told you life in a Northern town would have been my, my second most, uh, you know, my second pick. And they also have, uh, the love parade, which again, I don't think I remember that second song, but you know, technically does not qualify them. So actually thinking back, what would be my favorite one hit wonder that fits on this list? Um, probably at the time, and I don't know if this is still my answer today, but at the time probably would have been like Axel F. I loved the Axel F song, oh, like yeah. theme song. <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. Harold Fultmeyer, like I remember being able to play that on like my synthesizer. <laughs> I was so excited. That was like I, was definitely, I think that's what everybody learned as soon as they got a keyboard back in the eighties. Yeah, there were there were it's, two songs in the eighties everybody could piano. One was Axel F and the other yes. was Jump. Oh, yeah. You know, in, in regarding regarding uh Aha, I learned this from talking to Nina Blackwood a few weeks ago. Because mm-hmm. we we were talking, I think this was off the air, about um Aha, like again, this suggestion that they were perceived as one hit wonders, and she was explaining to me how everywhere except the United States, they're huge. In Europe, they're huge. You know, many, many hits. So, and again, another maybe sort of uh, angle to the data that, I guess, well, well, we're saying U.S. billboard charts. So I guess that's how we eliminate. Yeah, these are U.S. charts so for you've sure. you've got a lot of books ahead of you. You can do Germany, France, <laughs> Italy. That is true. Yeah. Crank out one of these every, every few yeah. months. So since, you know, again, we want to be objective. And so objectively, according to the numbers, mm-hmm. it seems like the 80s didn't have the most one-hit wonders. And maybe that's okay, Todd, and I'm going to let you explain why later. But first, why don't we talk about some of your theories as to why we may think that? Because certainly we, and I imagine our listeners, still believe that the 80s was filled with more one-hit wonders than any other decade. Yeah. I mean, I think if you asked, if you asked you know, 10 people on the street, they probably nine out of 10 of those folks would tell you that the eighties had the most one hit wonders. And so, yeah, there's a, there's a few theories around that. I mean, my original theory was, well, maybe it's a generational thing, right? Like I just kind of grew up listening to music from the eighties. And so I think the eighties have the greatest one hit wonders or the most. Um, but if you ask, you know, someone younger, they would be like, well, no, it's clearly the nineties or the 2000s, but it turns out, no, that's not true. Even, 
even uh, co-workers of mine who weren't even born in the 80s. Think of the 80s as sort of the era of one-hit wonders. Uh, so that I asked killed. my parents, you know, who are older than us, of course, mm-hmm. and they said the 80s as well. And, you know, they, they were, yeah. you know, their, their hits come from the 50s and 60s and after. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's what everyone believes. So my, my other theory, and of course, this is uh, a little harder to prove, is maybe the 80s simply just had the, the objectively best one-hit wonders. Like, I, you know, you can, everyone can still, you know, well, maybe, maybe they don't remember the Axel F theme song, but you ask them to, you know, sing some of their other favorite one-hit wonders from the 80s, and they'll, you know, be able to, they, they could probably, I don't know, could they sing Too Shy by Kajigu? That's a little oh, harder, yes. but they could definitely sing 99 Bus Balloon. Or we are the world. <laughs> all or, of those. Yes. Uh, yeah. And all of our listeners can sing um, all of those. Now you said you couldn't prove it objectively, but as a data scientist, you will try to do that anyway. Yeah, I tried. Um, you know, the most I was able to do is sort of look at, well, did the songs, did the one hit wonders from the eighties stay on the billboard charts longer, or maybe did they reach higher up? Um, but neither of those things actually seem to, to prove true in general. You know, the 80, the, the one hit wonders from the eighties didn't seem to either chart higher or stay on the charts longer than sort of some of the, the one hit wonders from other decades. Um, they're, they're all fairly similar. And I will point out the, a little the bit one better though. And this, and this is the first time we see the eighties chart higher in your, uh, analysis than bottom. So now according to at least the weeks in the top hundred eighties is ranked as third out of the five. Yeah, decades. they were, they were in the middle there. So, which actually, yeah, it's funny. The, the, the one-hit wonders from the 50s definitely disappeared a lot faster, maybe kind of going into your theory of how they were just cranking out lots of 45s right. back then. I thought that as well, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, it's funny. If you look at sort of the, the ones that stayed on the top 100 for the longest period of time, there's only, I think, only tainted love from the 80s. Um, and the number one with sort of the, the longest staying power was Barely Breathing by Duncan Sheik, which is still a very good song. I'm going to I'm gonna say it's a... It's not from the 80s, but it's still a pretty good song. Um, I'm sort talk of about songs I like, couldn't sing. What's that? I, I don't, I couldn't, I, you talk about earlier about songs that people might not be able to sing. I, I, that's a more recent song, and I, I wouldn't be able to hum that tune for you. I, I could, but for the sake of your listeners, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so your, your final theory here, which probably your best theory, I think you even say that in your, your work here, MTV had something to do with all of our perceptions of these, at least our perception of the one-hit wonders. Yeah, I think I, I kind of feel like MTV might be responsible for all of this because, you know, this was, I mean, MTV sort of was a big cultural phenomenon, at least, you know, for music listeners in, in the 80s, right? It's sort of where you went right. to, to watch music videos. And they were, you know, between them and I suppose VH1, like, you know, they were kind of one of the two only choices that you really had. And so right. I think maybe part of the reason, for instance, um, we all think of Take On Me as like the greatest one-hit wonder from the 80s, even though it's not, was, you know, partly because you couldn't go, you know, a day without seeing that video on MTV, you know, at least a half a dozen times, because it's a fantastic video and a good song. Um, but, you know, because I think MTV kind of, they own, they sort of had monopoly on what music videos we consumed, um, I think they, the one-hit wonders that were there in the 80s just had so much more of an impact on sort of all of us and our collective, I don't know, con- unconscious and, and how we sort of perceive music from back then. So I think that, that could certainly be another 
like another theory. While you know there's still music videos now on YouTube, uh, certainly you know you we're not all subjected to the same ones. Like you know I can go and I can watch Angam Style, but someone else can go and watch you know some completely different music video, and we're not being sort of exposed to to the same ones you know by by a network that's choosing what to air, it's all much more individual. And so sort of the, the impact of the one hit wonders may be. And I I wonder, you know, again, this idea of, look, we want to be objective and this, Mm -hmm. look, we we thoroughly appreciate the work you did here because this is, you know, undisputably, undisputably, that sounds like the wrong word, indisputably, the most objective analysis we've ever had on our show. But again, maybe the data, not, not because of your work, but maybe Mm -hmm. the data is flawed in a sense, because to your point, maybe in the 80s, the influence of MTV couldn't be tracked on Billboard, you know? So the fact that we had it meant less songs were purchased. So therefore, they weren't appearing on Billboard charts, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And then the flip side of it, like you're talking about, you can look up stuff on YouTube. Again, that doesn't necessarily translate into something quantifiable on a Billboard chart. Um, so there definitely seems to be some gaps that maybe, maybe, you know, work for this idea that even though, like you're saying, subjectively, we seem like uh, the 80s had the most hits. Maybe even objectively, it had more, uh, had something that we, we, we can't quantify or measure at this point, mm-hmm. but in fact, they did have more hits. But maybe they did, and, and okay, so before we move on, because you, you made one final point earlier that I thought was really good about um, the 80s and one-hit wonders, but I will point out, however, again, in the 80s column here, is that when you when you ultimately, you know, towards the end of your analysis here, you 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 provide us with the the biggest one-hit wonders of all time. And at least by my count here, it seems like the 1980s is the decade with the most in your top, in the 16, let's say the top 16, because that's what we could look at on this sheet that I printed out here. There are six from the 1980s, and all the other decades have less than that. So that means something. That right? does mean I, something. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think there's, yeah, these were, this last little bit was sort of like, who are really kind of one hit wonders in that they had a really popular song and then never had anything again. Um, at least, you know, that, that, that reached, um, anything on the, on the billboard charts. Um, and so, you know, for instance, come on Eileen, I think is the quintessential example of a one hit wonder. And yeah, they, hit number one, and that was the only song they ever had that hit the, the top 100. Yeah, also on here, at number, ranking, charting higher here, is Vangelis's Chariots of Fire theme. I remember mm-hmm. that playing on the radio all the time. I've yep. never seen the movie, and I could tell you that. <laughs> so you made a comment to us off the air that I thought was very wise, and you know, and something we'd expect from a person that's brilliant enough to do all this analysis, but maybe there's a reason it's okay that the eighties doesn't appear in the, as the number one decade for one hit wonders on all this data. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, it's basically, maybe it's okay that the eighties didn't have the most one hit wonders. Like maybe it actually means that the eighties had more high quality bands that were able to produce more than one song. And I mean, you know, sometimes we say one hit wonder is a good thing, but oftentimes Mm -hmm. people will say one hit wonders as a, um, you know, sort of a, a, a dismissive thing, a derogatory thing. Like, okay, they only had enough quality to put out one song, and then that was it. Um, and so, you know, maybe the fact that we have the fewest one-hit wonders actually speaks to the number of bands in the '80s that um, were actually that actually were good, that were able to produce more than one song that we all liked. Um, and then on top of that, because the '80s are still remembered as one-hit wonders, you know, it just so happens that they're most popular hits are just better. How about uh, that? 
You like that's, that? <laughs> you know, I, all I heard in there was the 80s were awesome, the best, better. There you go. No, that's perfect. You're right. So if whether whether it was, it, it's either good that we didn't have the most hit wonders, but even still, our one hit wonders were better than yours because they're more memorable, obviously. Maybe, yes, maybe that's it. Okay. I'll, I like that theory. <laughs> well, I'll, hey, I'll buy that. You're right. Well, we'll take it from you with, you know, hey, you work for Google, so you got to be smart. So uh, with that, uh, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know how <laughs> I got in there, honestly. <laughs> with that, we'll, we'll, we'll thank you for your time, uh, Todd. We thoroughly appreciate it. Oh, sure thing. I'm, I'm so glad that you found my article and found it interesting enough to, to reach out to me. I, I really wasn't sure how many people were interested in both 80s music and, um, you know, sequel queries. It turns out that's not a huge overlap in terms of my audience. So I'm glad that you found yeah. me. You know, look, it's a little bit of a bummer to find out maybe the night, not to find out, not a guess, that the 1980s didn't have the most one-hit wonders, but I do like where Todd led us there, you know, as far as that, maybe that's a good thing, as far as what it says about the quality of musicians that were, we had during the 1980s. Well, here's what I know. Yep. All right. Yep. We have proven okay. beyond a shadow of a doubt oh. that the most quality <laughs> one-hit wonders were from the 1980s. Very good. We'll talk to you next time on The Idiots. See ya. See ya.